Hello, and welcome to the latest in our series of podcasts, the companion to the primary care excellence work, which has been created for all primary care staff in Greater Manchester. I'm Lynn Marsland. If you've missed any of our episodes, you can go back and download them at any time from wherever you already get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your colleagues so as many people as possible hear this series. We've specifically created today's podcast as we know how difficult it can sometimes be for those of you working in the frontline environment where stress and anxiety can be high and the behaviour of others can be problematic, even aggressive. This podcast is the first of two episodes looking specifically at trauma. We've called it An Introduction to Understanding Trauma. We will cover recognising the symptoms, that is, behaviours, impact and consequences, when working with those who are or may have in the past experienced trauma. Introducing some simple and helpful examples of what trauma may look like, not just in others, but also within ourselves. Today's guest is Norma Howes. Norma trained as a social worker, then a therapist, then a child forensic psychologist, and now works as a psychotherapist with children and adults who have experienced or are experiencing all forms of trauma. Norma also does some training for professionals working with people who have experienced trauma. Welcome, Norma. And thanks for adding your very valuable experience to our growing list of podcasts. Can we start by you giving us some background into what the programme is that you've been working on and its importance to the role of GPs, managers and all frontline staff across primary care? Yes, indeed. Thank you for asking me to contribute to this. I was involved in doing some training. It was a multi-agency training for, I can't remember if it was for Oldham or um, Salford, but one of the GPs, one of your local GPs was on that training course. And she thought that what I was saying about how people behaved in response to stress and trauma would be really interesting for other people to hear about. So I was asked if I would contribute to this broadcast so that it would help with everyday communications and chat and work and play and home and helping people to improve the just the chatting together that helps us get the best information and understanding what makes people sometimes be a bit more difficult to deal with. Two parts were identified when we were having a conversation about what would need to be in this podcast and it came up with two particular issues. There were organisational issues And the other issue was how to deal effectively and calmly with difficult patients, or at least patients that we would call difficult, and then understanding what might be making them behave in a way that we found difficult, but they also found difficult in dealing with us. So I'm going to share with you some information about both so that you can think about how you can use the information to incorporate it into your skills that you already have that enable you to communicate with folks. Think about what you need to do about it, whether or not you can identify a problem, and then whether or not that problem belongs to you to sort out or needs to go to someone else to sort out. 
That's really interesting, the two factors that you picked up there. So the the kind of organisational issues and then the really important one about how to deal effectively and calmly with patients. Can you tell us a bit more about the behaviour of some of the patients and the thinking it's given rise to? Yes, I'd be delighted. Because my work involves me with working with patients who have experienced different levels of trauma, sometimes what we call little t trauma, and sometimes what we would call big T trauma. And it's pretty obvious what those two initials mean. It's like it's little things, but it's still trauma or a big thing that would be so overwhelming that it would be uh, just anyone would find it extraordinarily difficult to deal with. But sometimes we miscall things trauma when actually they should just be called stressful. And if we're thinking that we've mistaken that, then sometimes we also make a mistake about what we expect people to be able to do to manage those particular situations. I found what helps in my own practice is that whenever I hear someone, either myself or someone else using the word should, then I think, hang on a minute, what would happen if we change that word to the word could? Because if we use the word should, you feel bad because you feel you should be doing something and you feel you should be doing better and you feel you should be coping more. But if we were to use the word could, then you think, well, I could be doing something. But then it makes you think, well, how could I do it? If you use the word should, you then think, challenges me, I can't think, I can't think. So then that makes me feel even worse. And I feel really, I begin to feel bad about myself. And then one of the common things that we do when we feel bad about ourselves is we look for someone else to blame. And we think, well, who was it made me feel like this? Well, it was that patient that made me feel like this. So it's that patient that's the problem, not me that's the problem. And that happens especially when we use the word should and not the word could. So whenever you find yourself using the word should, change it to a could. And then maybe you'll find a solution to the problem. Do you know, it's interesting that when that happens, it causes two things. We feel bad or we feel angry. And it's interesting that those two feelings will generally come up when we feel useless or we feel helpless. But that's not just us as workers. That's happening to our patients as well. Norma, that's fascinating. And and how simple just the use of language, even if we're using it in our own head, simply to just change that, the impact that it could have on us or should have on us. The word is could have on us, obviously. Can you tell us a bit more about your experience of working with these challenging patients? If I can just say another bit about the change of use of words, because that was interesting that you picked that up, is that one of the other words that I think I find I don't use is the word why. Because when I'm having a conversation with someone and we're finding it difficult, if I say, well, why did you do that? Why did you behave like that? Why did you talk to me like that? Why was that person difficult? We then blame that person. Because the why, starting a question, starting with the word why, is blaming and shaming. But if we start the sentence with the word what, then it changes it round because then we're thinking, what was it that was happening that made that difficult for that person? What was it that was happening to me that made me respond like that? So we ask starting with what, and that again makes us curious. And when we're curious, we can then change things for the better and improve our communication skills, if I call it that. So it's it's dropping the word why. Useful too to start sentences with tell me, explain to me, or describe to me. And not why, 
describe to me why you're phoning. It's describing what's making you phone just now. It's describing, tell me what it is. Not tell me why. Tell me what it is that you're worried about. And it just changes things. We don't blame, we don't shame. And that helps people to talk to us, feel more comfortable about talking to us because they feel to start with that we understand. This is great. I feel like I've learned so much, even in the first five or 10 minutes of the podcast about very simple things that we could do. But I know you do a lot more in-depth work with patients and with frontline staff as well, Norma. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that. Surely, yes. In conversation with my own patients, three things become clear. That we need to tell the difference between little T trauma and big T trauma. The second thing is that everybody's ability to manage a problem, whether that's a practical problem or an emotional problem, is unique. Individual to each person. And then what becomes clearer and clearer is that the resulting coping behaviour that that person has to enable them to deal with that experience is what causes the problem. Not at the time, because at the time it was the most useful thing they could find and the most useful thing, not that they could think about, but it was the most useful thing that their brain body did to enable them to cope with what was happening. But when that behaviour then happens, when that same complication, when that same feeling, when that same sense of terror or panic or distress or anger comes up again, our brains apply the same solution that worked the last time. And that can be completely out of place and completely upsetting. And we then get blamed for using that behaviour. It was functional and it ensured your survival and it got you through that trauma that you experienced. But it's now in the wrong place and at the wrong time. And so we need to be thinking that the behaviours not the problem. It's the answer to a problem. And if it's the answer to a problem, we need to think about what might the problem be. And that can then be really helpful. And in conversations with folks, whether that can become a very useful conversation, because again, it doesn't blame and shame, but it evokes a kind of empathic curiosity that allows people to then think about what that might be about. We don't blame them for using that solution again. We're curious about them using that solution again and then maybe helping them to think about what another solution might be. Because when something is too difficult to manage, whether it's stress or trauma, something happens. Our thinking brain tries to work, but it can't. So our thinking brain essentially goes offline and instead our feeling brain takes over. It's your cortex against your limbic system. Your feeling brain takes over and it tries to find a response and a way of dealing with your feelings. Not the situation that you're in. The most important thing to do is to try and sort out your feelings. And so the last time you had those feelings, if they were at an intolerable level and they challenged you, then the solution you have is to those feelings, not necessary to the actual situation that you're in. So when we offer help or even punishment to try and change a behaviour, it seldom changes the behaviour because we're not dealing with the feelings. We're not thinking about what these feelings might be. We need to think. The person we're working with isn't thinking, they're just feeling. We have to think about how do we regulate that person's feelings? How do we externally have an impact on them that enables them to lessen the height of the feelings that they have? 
and bring their thinking brain back online again and think about a different way of coping with a situation the next time. If we don't do that, then what happens is that a feeling can become a belief. I'm useless. I'm not lovable. Everyone's out to get me. I can't change. And once that happens, the behaviour, which was the solution, doesn't change. And of course, we know from the language that we use quite commonly is we have fight and flight as a solution. Fight might be anger. Flight might be using alcohol or drugs, whether they're prescribed or illegal. We might use one of the other Fs. There are actually seven. I'll come back to that a bit later. We've got fight and fight and feed and reproduce and freeze and flop and fart. And then one of the other Fs might be to flop. So you give up trying. And you then think about how do I excuse the person who's causing this problem? And maybe we see that quite often in situations where there's domestic abuse. So to help you to think about how your feelings can take over from your ability to find a solution to something, I want you to find a pen and a piece of paper. And I'm going to ask you to do a little exercise. And while you're doing that exercise, listen to what I'm saying to you about how to do it. And then watch to see whether or not what changes in your body, in your thinking. Do you immediately think of the solution? And how does your body respond to you immediately finding the solution? If you don't know the solution and you can't find the solution, look to see whether or not your breathing changes, your hands tighten, your toes curl. Just notice whether or not you get a rumble in your tummy, you get a gut response. All of these things are the responses that your body has to a challenge. And that happens automatically. It's not something over which we have immediate control. We can understand it more and get some control, but our bodies do these things. So that when we're working with somebody, what we're watching for is not what's happening on their face. Because if you have lived with a lot of trauma and you've lived with a lot of harm being done to you, then one of the things you learn how to do is not to let anybody know from your face how you're feeling or what impact their behaviour is having on you. So your face looks all right, but your body's responding. And we notice that people's fingers will curl, their shoulders will tighten, then the saliva in their mouth will change, their breathing will change as they are becoming dysregulated. They're changing in their balance of their of how they're coping. And then we then need to intervene in that in a very gentle way that enables us to slow our voice down, to speed our voice up. If we notice that they're going up, we then bring them back down. If we notice that they're going down, we bring them back up. We know that from how you play games with children. The adult knows when to stop. The child doesn't know when to stop the game, but we teach them how to self-regulate by us appropriately regulating them externally. It's not an insult to say that sometimes when you're experiencing trauma, your behaviour can be quite childlike and it needs somebody to externally regulate your arousal so that you can, from that external regulation, bring yourself back down again, back into a place where there's a balance between your thinking and your feeling. So back to this little exercise. What I want you to do is to write the letter V. And then what I want you to do is to add one line so that what you look at is the number six. 
And I'm hoping you immediately got the answer. And the, the answer was, maybe I could ask Lynn, Lynn, what solution did you come up with? I came up with the Roman numeral VI or V1, whatever it is. So it's five plus one equals six. V1. Are you great? I hope so. <laughs> Are you sure? Yes. Yes. Yes, I'm sure. You're really sure? It's not the mm. other side? No, because that would be one, that would be four. Okay. Now, it's interesting because you can't actually see Lynn, but I can see her. And as I'm asking you those questions, she started to smile, but her shoulders went up and down and she started to wobble. So just in me challenging her very gently about an answer that she knows she's correct and giving me, I'm asking her if she's right. And immediately she's a little bit dysregulated and I smile and she smiles. And then we both relax and we both come down again before we go on to do the next bit of the exercise. Because now I'm going to ask Lynn to draw a one and an X. And now I want you to add a line, one line, so that when you look at it, you see the number six. And the wrong answer is writing the number six. And I can see that Lynn is puzzled and she's concentrating hard and she's trying to think what the answer is. But I suspect that what she's doing is she's trying to find another Roman numeral. Is that yeah. right, Lynn? Aha. I've, it's just, yes. So have you come up with a different answer? Uh, no. <laughs> but no, not yet. <laughs> but if I left it long enough, because the right answer is actually writing the letter S on the left-hand side. Ah, so it is. So it is. S-I-X. Yeah. And then it's not unusual when you do that for someone to say to me, but that's a letter, it's not a line. <laughs> What? You can then see how you begin to defend yourself and thinking, I'm not really stupid. That's a letter. That's not a line. Hang on a minute. It's a bit of causes another bit of dysregulation. And that's what we're looking for. And that's what we're trying to understand is what causes that lets us know when somebody's becoming dysregulated and how to bring themselves back down again. Because you stop. And very often as well, if I left somebody for long enough, if I just said to Lynn, keep going, keep going, keep going. Eventually she said, I'm, never, I'm not any good at maths. There's no way I'm going to get this. I should be able to get this. She's got a should. And they say, well, okay, let's think about how you could answer it. And then we go back to finding a solution to the problem rather than leaving it as a, as a difficult thing. I was doing this with a young person whose behaviour in class is, is disrupting all the classes. He lived with a lot of violence and he's now in foster care. And it was really interesting because what he does is disrupt the class by telling stupid jokes. But what's in his notes from the social worker is that when he was a little boy, he was known as the family clown because what he would do when the violence was going to happen in those moments when it was before it happened, he would say something funny that would try and take control over the violence that might happen within the household. And he's now doing the same thing in the class by telling a stupid joke. But it's not helpful now in the class and it's getting him into serious trouble. So I was using this exercise to help him to see that when you've got a solution that works, Boy, does that solution get applied in sometimes completely the wrong place and at the wrong time. So when I asked him to do the exercise, doing the one and the X, he said, no, I can't do that. No, I can't do that. And I said, OK, what's that about then? And he said, I can make it into a three. I said, what, you can make it into a three? Um, <laughs> what, are you writing the number three? He said, no, that was the wrong answer for a six. So it must be the wrong answer for a three. So I said, OK, what are you doing then? But what he then did was he drew a square root sign because the square root of nine is three. I thought, wow, 
we're not going to have a problem finding another solution for you. But what we needed to do was find out what it was that he was finding was a similar feeling that he had at home. What triggered that feeling that he's now coping with by being funny? And when we actually had a conversation about it, it was when things went quiet. Because when quiet at home equaled something awful going to happen. So when things were quiet in the class, and now that he's 14, there's a lot of self-discipline and a lot of self-control required in your learning. But he's finding that intolerable and getting himself into some significant trouble. So it was useful just to think about it and to see if we could help him to find different solutions. But one of the things we needed to do was to notice when he was becoming dysregulated, not just me, but himself, so that he then noticed early on that he was becoming dysregulated and he was then able to regulate himself without going into that panic place by recognising what it was and then dealing with it. Now, when you're dealing with patients, I can do that as a therapist, but when you're dealing with patients, it can be much more difficult. But the basic information is helpful. It's then thinking about what causes this reaction in me, what causes this reaction in the patient, and then how can I better manage that in the future so that we don't get into these complicated rows or arguments or feelings that, oh, this patient. And when you smack the phone down and you look at a colleague and go, oh, you can deal with that patient the next time. But that tone of voice that you were using when you're talking to your colleague might well be the tone of voice that you ended the conversation with with your patient. And how does that patient then feel the next time they phone the next time they come to see you, the next time they get worried about having to talk to you because their expectation is, I need to be ready for this person to talk to me like this and I'm immediately in fight or flight. So we need to think about that. What a fascinating example. I mean, I think one of the things that I'm picking up from the podcast so far today, Norma, are these very, very simple things, be it a change in language, a change in expression, that can have such a difference, make such an impact on the relationship or the interaction that you're having with somebody. But I think the other key point that I'm also picking up is this self-awareness Do I actually notice the impact that my behaviour or my language is having on somebody else? And can I therefore do something about it? And also the time to be more aware of what's happening in the other person that I'm dealing with. So rather than just go off on one because they've raised their voice, as you say, trying to calm them down. And that takes time. That takes time out of our busy day when we've got a queue of patients potentially behind that one or 15 on a a telephone queue. It does take time. Absolutely. And I think what really helps is that we think, what is this person feeling that's making them behave like this? Because they're not thinking. It's not a deliberate thought through way of behaving. It's an immediate response to the feelings that they've got. And kind of once we get that, then we just respond to what we think the feelings are and we just bring the whole tension out of it. It's no point in being logical. There's no point in dealing with it from a thinking perspective. It's thinking about, okay, let's just go on to the next bit. Tell me what the problem is. You know, I was thinking about another patient who phones, but how is she feeling when she phones? What's going on in her life that's making her phone for an appointment? And I was thinking about it and thinking, so you've got this patient who's phoning, but before she's, the reason she's phoning is that she's really anxious because her husband's ill. 
and he's not been able to work for months. And she doesn't know when he's going to get back to work again. And the benefits she's relying on are not covering our current current rising costs. How is she feeling about having her electricity bill going up to £4,000? Goodness me, because managing money is becoming very, very difficult and hugely stressful. It's really not copable with. The physio has also said that he might need some oxygen plugged in and that's going to require higher bills of electricity. Where's she going to get the money for that? It's coming up to the summer holidays. Free school meals will stop. How's she going to be able to feed her children? She's got a phone that's pay as you go. She's worrying that she runs out of credit because she needs to keep her phone to hand for all different reasons that you need that. She needs a prescription for him. She also needs an appointment for herself. So she dials the surgery. She then has to wait for 20 minutes to get through. And while she's waiting, she's listening to the repeated apology, which says, your call is important to us. The reception staff are busy with other patients. She's thinking, I'm a failure as a wife and a mother and a manager. And I'm hearing that other patients are more important than me. This is making me not feel okay. I really feel unhappy now. I'm swinging between flight and fight. I'm angry that this recording is telling me that other people are more important than me. But I'm also feeling that I just need to hang up. But I can't hang up because I've got to try and get these things sorted out. And it's kind of like the other answerphone message that I think I've got on my, my local GPs is that the reception staff have been asked to triage before so that they can put you through to the right clinician. What does triage mean? I don't even know what that word means. Triage. Oh, I've heard that on casualty, but what does... And I'm not thinking now because I'm being quite overwhelmed by my feelings. And then suddenly a voice says to me, hello, can I help you? I need an, I need, I need an appointment. Is it urgent? I can't even think how to answer the question. So I can't even think. And I say, yeah, I just need an appointment. Well, we don't have any appointments available for the next six days. But call again at eight o'clock in the morning and maybe you can get an on-the-day appointment if one's available. What do you expect my response to be? Am I going to be okay about all this? Am I going to hang up and say, oh, or I'm just going to cry and I've just been overwhelmed. And what I've tried to do, I've failed again in the same way that I'm feeling with so many other things. Depending on which part of the swing you're on, fight or flight. So when we're thinking about it, we're going to have to think about how do we tell the difference between somebody who's finding something stressful and therefore their thinking brain and their feeling brain are working together or they're finding it traumatic because they've already got enough to manage and enough to cope with. And waiting to get through for 20 minutes for some folks will be intolerable and will be adding to their already high state of tension and high state of anxiety and high state of everything else. Their stomach's going, their heart's going. They're just finding this waiting intolerable. But we're expecting them to be okay when they get through to us. So we need to think about how we can understand what makes something different and difficult to cope with for one patient, but actually is something that seems to be okay for lots and lots of other patients. Because what we then do is we blame the patient rather than actually thinking what might be going on for that patient. But not only what might be going on with that patient, what's actually going on in our surgery about how they're trying to get through to us, about what's actually happening in the impact that getting through to us and having an appointment 
and then not getting the right doctor and then not getting the right time and then not being able to talk about things and not having time. How are we going to deal with that? And how do we avoid blaming the patient? What a point to end on, Norma. Thank you so much for this part one of our exploration of trauma. I certainly found some of the insights you've given us very helpful. From considering how I perceive others to be functioning to now needing some time to go away and reflect a bit more on my own ways of behaving in stressful or difficult situations and changing some very simple words which I use often. I'm so looking forward to episode two, when Norma will be taking us through expanding our knowledge of trauma and its impact. Do join us for that part two. What a great set of insights we've just added to our previous episodes. If you've missed any of them, do go back and download them for free. And we'd really love it if you could share them with your friends. We want as many people as possible to hear the useful advice from all our amazing guests. Don't forget there's a wealth of information and advice on the Primary Care Excellence page too. All links are on the show page and you can also connect via our social media channels if you're involved in a project you want others to know about. The more we work together, the happier and healthier our workforce will be. This has been a Fresh Air production. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.